Theologian Albert Muller recently wrote, if we begin with the wrong conception of God, we will misconstrue the entirety of the Christian faith. Now, in singer Garth Brooks' song, Unanswered Prayer, he refers to God as the, quote, man upstairs. I've heard a lot of people refer to God that way. Similarly, I've heard people refer to him as the big man, my co-pilot, my homeboy, my golf buddy, Jesus' old man, and the big man in the sky. Some talk about God as if he were a celestial Santa Claus or a genie in a bottle, who is there only to be called upon whenever you have a need. He will suddenly show up with his big sack, and he'll reach down and pull out something for you, and it'll meet your need, and then with a hearty ho, 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 he'll return to his home high above the North Pole, waiting anxiously for your next need. But is that who God really is? Is that all there is to him? I believe we need a clearer vision of God for our modern society. Today, I'd like for us not to take a new look at God, but instead a renewed look at God. Perhaps we have not been seeing and recognizing God for who he really is. And perhaps that's why we have so many false ideas about him. Let's look at what the prophet Isaiah discovered in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, and I know that means nothing to you, but King Uzziah was one of the rarities back in the Old Testament in that he was a good king, and he ruled for 52 years. Think about that. In our terms, that would mean we'd have one president since 1970. Tricky dicky. <laughs> Some of you didn't get it, but others did. <laughs> During his rule, Israel became one of the strongest nations on earth. But by the time he died, the Assyrians were growing in power, and when they were beginning to invade other nations. So, after 52 years of good, strong rule, their leader has died, and now war was on the horizon. Continue in verse 1. I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and a train of his robe filled the temple. Now, in the Bible, only the Apostle John and Isaiah were given a vision of the, temp of the throne room of God. So what they say about it, we had better listen to it. It's important. In the year that Isaiah was concerned about the fact that the people were turning away from God, in that very year, when war seemed inevitable, in that year when the end seemed near, in that year when everything looked bleak, in the year when a strong and good leader has died, in that very year, at that very time, Isaiah saw an even greater king. And that king was sitting on 
an eternal throne. And that king was untouched by what was happening on earth. Things that happen on earth may seem devastating to us, but we should never forget the world is anchored to the character and the rule of a mighty king whose rule never ends. In that year, at that time, God sought out Isaiah, and God gave him a vision of himself as the great king in all his glory. And it says his train filled the temple. Now, that does not mean that God took Isaiah down to the basement and showed him his train set. What that refers to is the train of a robe that drags behind the wearer. In biblical days, the train represented the glory and splendor, the triumphs and the victories of the wearer. In fact, when one king defeated another one, he would cut off the train of the defeated king and have it sewn onto his own. And so the longer the train, the more power and glory that king would have. God's train filled the temple. He had defeated all his enemies. This, his train will make Uzziah's train and the train of the Assyrians look like nothing. Now the vision continues. Isaiah sees seraphim, verse 2. Above Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, and two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. Now, it's interesting. This is the only passage in the Bible where seraph or seraphim are mentioned. All we know about the seraphim is in this passage right here. One thing we know that they are not, they are not little chubby, naked Babies flying in the air, shooting arrows at us. All God has revealed about them is right here. They are in his presence, and they're in his presence forever. Makes me wonder about all those books written about the seraphim. Whole books written on this passage about the seraphim. I think they probably should be filed under fiction. Now, since, in, since the seraphim are in God's presence, they know God better than anyone else. They are in his presence 24-7, forever and ever. So we better not ignore what they have to say about him. Actually, they sing it, verses 3 and 4. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the doors, posts, and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Holy, holy, holy. I think that the problem with when we talk about holiness is that I don't think we all have an idea of what that means. What it literally means is to cut away, to separate from everything else. About 10 minutes ago, I came up here. I was cut away, separated from you. That doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm holy. But 
But that's the idea, and we'll get back to that idea later. To say that God is holy is to say nothing or nobody else is quite like him. There is nobody to compare him to. He is one of a kind. He is unique. He is unlimited. He is spiritually pure. He is untouched by evil. He is perfect. On the other hand, we are warped by sin. We are imperfect. And he is separated from everything that is imperfect. Everything that is imperfect like us. Now, since all this is true, then we, no one can really understand who God is or understand everything there is to know about him. This makes it almost amusing when you have those people come knocking at your door and they say, they tell you that they reject the idea of the Trinity all because they don't understand it. Duh. <laughs> of course you don't understand it. It's God you're talking about here. He is separated than, from you. He is higher than you. You can't understand everything there is to understand about him. If you could understand everything there is about God, then you'd have to be his equal. Now, if Albert Einstein came walking in here, after you the shock of the fact that he, he's still alive, um, and if he started talking and I said, hey, I understand everything Albert Einstein understands, you'd have to conclude that I'd have to be probably his equal. I know as much as he does. If God came walking in here, nobody could compare to him. Now note the word holy is repeated three times. Now that is very significant. Now in English, if we want to emphasize something, we put quotation marks around it, we capitalize it, we underline it to draw attention to it. But in the Hebrew people did not do that. What they did is they simply repeated it. Holy, holy, holy is repeated. The seraphim are screaming out to us, take notice. God is really, really, really holy. Now this is the only attribute of God that is ever repeated in the Bible. The seraphim who spent all their time in God's presence are struck by his holiness. They did not say, love, love, love. They did not say, mercy, mercy, mercy. They didn't say that either. No. <laughs> they did not say, peace, peace, peace. The angelic beings who are closest to God are telling us his predominant attribute is his holiness, his uniqueness. Holiness is used to describe God more than any other adjective, more than any other attribute, more than any other description in the Bible. He is described as holy. Now, I'm not downplaying the other attributes, like love. I think we should emphasize it just as much as we are. But what I'm saying is, we need to reconsider his holiness a little bit. Perhaps we need to be talking a little bit more about his holiness. On the other hand, I think that holiness might not so much be an attribute of God as actually a, a combination of all his attributes. All his attributes 
make him holy. It makes him different than us, separated from us. He is totally different from everything else. He is unique. He is beyond everything. And we must realize no one can completely understand his holiness. No one can completely understand God. You must just recognize him for who he is and accept that he is greater than anything else you know and realize that he loves you. The only response when you meet God is to bow in fear before him. Now, I know I've quoted C.S. Lewis before, and so I'm going to do it again. And right out of Chronicles of Narnia, again, and it might be the same quote I used before, so bear with me, I'm getting old. In the book Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan is a lion, and he represents Christ. And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are talking to two children about him. Oh, says Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel very nervous about meeting a lion. Mrs. Beaver replied, If there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without his knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then is he safe, says Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about him being safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. His holiness makes him scary. His unlimitlessness should scare us. But at the same time, we know that he's good and he's loving. And so even as we might be afraid of him, we are drawn to him because we know he loves us. We know that someone who loves us as much as him cannot be ignored. Yet he's always awesome always scary, always mysterious, always unnerving. And yet we realize this almighty holy one has one big desire, and that is to shower us with his love, his joy, his mercy, his peace. And so we find ourselves drawn towards him. Holiness controls everything there is about God. Without holiness, his love becomes indulgence to sin and wrongdoing. Without holiness, his mercy becomes weakness. Without holiness, his wrath becomes madness. Without holiness, his power becomes tyranny. Without holiness, his wisdom becomes foolishness. Without holiness, the Bible's message makes makes no sense at all. And Christ's death on the cross is a completely meaningless and nonsense thing for him to have done. Without holiness, church is just a place for potlucks, bake sales, or to play bingo. A place to go on Sunday if you have nothing else to do. Indeed, without holiness, God does become the absent-minded man upstairs, who you can ignore anytime you want to, and he won't mind because he probably forgot you were there. Isaiah saw the holy God. And when we see the holy God, we are confronted with the fact that he is perfect and we are just common sinners. We are not holy. And we are so different from him 
He is unique. He is separated from us. He is holy. And sooner or later, each one of us will have to face him. Each one of us will have to deal with the fact that God is holy. We can deal with him now, where he would then forgive us and shower us with his love and adopt us into his family and be a very loving father to us. Or we can wait. Wait till the next life and face him as our judge, the perfect God judging an imperfect being. So, after Isaiah's vision of the perfect God, he makes an inward look at himself. Verse 5. You know, they're making Bibles smaller now. The print in Bibles are really small now. Have you noticed that? They used to be bigger. They're harder to read now. Woe is me, I cried, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I have lived among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King the Lord Almighty. God is so much greater than us, everything about him is frightening to us. This is seen in Isaiah's reaction, but it's seen in the reaction of everybody in the Bible who meets God. They are crushed physically, emotionally, spiritually. I could have listed a whole bunch of them, but I just picked out three that I like. Habakkuk had a vision of God. Habakkuk was a prophet. And he said, rottenness has filled my bones. Peter had a vision of God in the boat. And he begged Christ to leave him. Get away from me, he said. John had a vision of God, and he fell to the ground as if dead. In sharp contrast, in the 20th and 21st century, seems like a lot of people are having visions of God. Instead of being humbled, they're going around bragging about him. A couple that I remember from the 80s. In the 80s, there was a famous evangelist who claimed that God appeared to him while he was in his hospital room, and God suddenly appeared to him in his room. He said God was about five feet tall, and he, his presence filled the entire room. You get that? What he's saying? God was a short, fat guy. He didn't say whether he had a red suit on and a long white beard. Now, I don't know what that guy saw, but I suspect the doctor needs to adjust his medication a little bit. Now, around the same time, evangelist, and I'm going to use his name here, I'm sorry, Oral Roberts said that he saw God too. Only the God he saw wasn't short. The God he saw was 900 feet tall. That's a big guy. And this giant God told him, raise $8 million or else. If you don't raise $8 million for me, I'm going to take you home. Evidently, God was hard on it for cash. And so he had to hold Oral Roberts for ransom. This makes God sound more like a criminal than a holy God. I suspect God was not the one who wanted the money. 
When people truly see God, they do not go around bragging about it. They get on their knees before him and worship him. And they get right with him. When we come into contact with the holy God, his holiness acts as a cleansing fire burning away any imperfection and sin in us. That is why we are humbled by a vision of God. We realize how imperfect and unholy we are. As part of this, His holiness, the Bible says in Hebrews 12, verse 9, our God is a consuming fire. God in his mercy confronts us with the fire of his holiness in order to burn away all imperfection, to burn away our sin. Now this vision of God has crushed Isaiah. He sees his sins and so he cries out for mercy. God responds to his cry for mercy by cleansing him and forgiving him. Verses 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the, with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, "This, see this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sins are atoned for. Now in the Bible, when they had the altar, they, they had to keep a fire going, and the fire on the altar represented the holiness of God. So here we have the seraph taking a coal from the fire and touching his lips. Evidently, Isaiah's big sin had to do with stuff he was saying. And God cleansed him of that. The fire was applied to his lips and his sin is burnt away. Isaiah's sins are forgiven. The vision that he has of God has completely changed Isaiah. God's cleansing fire has turned Isaiah into a new man. And so now Isaiah is ready to serve God in whatever capacity God desires him. Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and he, who will go for us? And he said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people. Isaiah responds and to God's request and says, here am I, send me. Notice he what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, here am I, send George. Here am I, send Jim. Here am I, send my neighbor. He says, here am I, I will go. Fire of God applied to his lips and his sin is burned away. Isaiah's sins are forgiven. He is changed. Now, there are two Hebrew words used in the Bible for Lord. One of them is used in verse 3. It's the word Yahweh, which is the, word, which is the name that uh, God gave to Moses. It's the name that uh, the Jewish people refuse to say even to this day because it's so holy. Now, the second word for Lord is used in this verse. It means Lord of the universe. Think of it as a title. So what we have in this context is this. The Lord Yahweh, of verse 3, is speaking as the holy Lord of the universe, asking, who will go out into this world for me? And Isaiah says, I'll do it. Whatever you want me to do is fine with me. At this point, there's no specifics as to what God wants him to do. Just go and speak for us. 
All that has happened to Isaiah is he has seen a holy God. In response to the holiness of God, he says, anything you want me to do, I will do. Because he is holy, Isaiah knows God is untouched by the things of this earth, and so he serves God. As he serves God, he knows that nothing can stop God from loving him and taking care of him. Not only in this life, but for all eternity. And so Isaiah is handing God a blank check. I will go where you send me. I will do whatever you want me to do. I will say what you want me to say. He has met Yahweh, the Holy Lord, the one who is Lord of the universe. And so he wants to go wherever God sends him. When we are confronted with the Holy God, we are put in our place. And we realize the only logical response to him is to serve him wherever he wants us to serve. When we meet the Holy God, we will never be the same again. Now, I confess around 15 years ago, I told myself I would never preach again, and I would never teach again, and I would never serve on a church board. Josh gets up here and preaches every Sunday morning. When, it's, when he asked me to come up here, he just asked me to speak loudly. Jim Williams and I lead a class in the back. We take turns. Jim teaches. I facilitate. I have to admit, I'm on the board. I'm 0 for 3. Can't get around it. I tried to. I didn't want to get on the board. I tried to talk them out of it. And after getting on the board, the board members will tell you, I used any excuse at all. I wanted to resign and get off as quickly as I could. But I had a problem. My problem was I was angry and bitter at that time. I was hurt. I wanted to retreat away from everybody. I wanted to become a monk. I wanted to go up on top of a hill with just my wife and, and a little house with a rocking chair in the front and just sit there and watch the world go by, never having to deal with people again. That was my desire. But my biggest problem with that dream was this. Around 50 years ago, <clears throat> I met a holy God. And the holy God wanted me to go. And so I had to go. When you meet a holy God that trumps everything else in your life, you can break your promises to yourself but you can't break promises to the holy God. You have to obey him because he's holy. He is your Lord. He is your heavenly father. He loves you. He will take care of you. And so when he says to do something, you better do it. It's for your benefit. So my fear and distrust of people was trumped by my fear and love for God, because I met God 
as a holy God. His holiness must act like a pair of glasses through which we see and filter everything around us. Since he is holy, he is separated from limitations and imperfections. The one who sits on the throne of the universe to rule forever is the holy God, whose love is perfect, his power is limitlessness, limitlessness, it doesn't have limits. So when he says he will take care of us, you better believe he will. Now, I hope I didn't bore you this morning. <clears throat> I hope that you actually caught a little glimpse of our God, of our holy God. Now, let me close with just a couple of suggestions. First, let me encourage you to pray daily for a fresh vision of the holiness of God and ask him to lead you to the cleansing fire of Christ's sacrificial death. Secondly, those who do not know the Holy Lord are easily shaken by things on earth, by war, by famines, by epidemics. That thing shakes them up because Quite frankly, this world is the best they will ever have if they do not turn to God. But you, if you know the Holy Lord, then you know that he's separated from these things. He's separated from this world of trouble. And you know that the one who sits on the throne of the universe, where nothing can stop him from doing anything he wants, and where nothing can stop him from loving you for all eternity, he will not allow anything on earth to completely destroy you. Because he loves you, he will shower you with his love, not only now, but forever. He sits on the throne of the universe. This world is not our home. We are just passing through. Our home is with God, whose love cannot be stopped, no matter what happens on this earth. Thirdly, Everybody is going to have to deal with a holy God, whether they like it or not. They can sit back and deny it all they want, but they will have to deal with him. Either on this earth, where he will then adopt you into his family and take care of you, or you can put it off and deal with him in the next, where he will be your judge. And that you will no longer have a chance to be adopted into his family. And therefore, you will be separated from him forever and ever. I remind you, the holy God cannot overlook imperfection. For your own benefit, allow the holy God to touch you and allow his holy fire of forgiveness to cleanse you of your sins while you still have a chance. If you'd like to talk to an elder about this, please do so after the church. You can come forward and we'll have somebody here who can talk to you about it. Let's pray. We stand in awe before you. You are holy and we are unholy. And yet you have adopted us and cleansed us and made us to be your holy people. We thank you. Help us never to forget that you are holy and that you love us and that we are now in your holy family, in your name, amen.